This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. This episode gets into some tricky territory. It's worth saying that the views expressed here don't necessarily reflect the opinions of everyone I interviewed or the organizations they work for. The last couple of weeks have been kind of tough on the United States. We've seen a lot of angry people, especially angry women. I, like many of my friends, was looking for an intelligent commentary on that moment. And I found one on Twitter, of all places, from Jenna DeWitt. Hey, Truce Podcast listeners. My name is Jenna DeWitt, and I had a tweet last week that your host wanted me to share with you. She was kind enough to record her thoughts on her phone and send them to me. So I just tweeted that I was seeing a lot of people on Twitter asking, when can we have a conversation about the relationship between alcohol and violence in this country? Alcohol and violence. Because at the heart of the battle we're going through right now is this uneasy tension between freedom and excess. Alcohol, for a lot of us, is something we're kind of used to. At our parties, weddings, funerals, and depending on your denomination, communion services. Many of us are okay with alcohol, so long as it stays in sight, but out of discussion. However, Dr. Ford has described you as being intoxicated at a party. From time to time. Did you consume alcohol during your high school years? Yes, we drank beer. It uh, makes front page news. The boys and girls, yes, we drank beer. I liked beer. Still like beer. Like when Brett Kavanaugh was nominated for a seat on the Supreme Court of the United States. And then accused of sexual misconduct. There's enough coverage on that. We don't need to spend any more time on it. But this whole thing got Jenna and others thinking... Why haven't we been talking about the relationship between alcohol and violence? And the answer is that Christian feminists have been talking about this for about 150 years. It was a key reason that uh, Christian women were seeking the vote um, because they were seeing what alcohol had done to their families. And they were really seeing a lot of the damage in society as well. Um, But it was also a key reason that men wanted to keep us from getting the vote because they were afraid that If women had the vote, they would take away alcohol. So let's open it up. What's the story, the connection between alcohol, women, the gospel, and women's rights? You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Sterren, and this is Truce. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person 
place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. Believe it or not, Christians have historically played a big role on both sides of this issue. Christians, especially Christian women, were a force to be reckoned with when it came to the temperance movement in the 18 and 1900s, which was key territory in getting women the right to vote. Here's Jenna again. I just think that um, before we go talking about the problems in our society today, we need to look back at history and we need to see the whole history of what women have been saying about this topic for a very long time. Challenge accepted. Let's start with the American love of alcohol and the events that led up to the temperance movement. When you picture the 1700s, the 1800s, what do you see? I'm guessing covered wagons, Native Americans, maybe the Founding Fathers. But who were those people back then, really? Many of us think of them as being pretty prudish, puritanical even. Well, it's funny how the word puritanical gets used because the Puritans really weren't against alcohol at all. That's Jim Vorell. Uh, my name is Jim Vorell. I'm a staff writer for Paste Magazine in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, mostly writing about film and craft beer. I called him because he's written about the history of alcohol and the women's movement. Back to the Puritans. We, we use them as an example of of this rigidness and moral inflexibility but they thought that alcohol was like just part of daily life and like a gift from God as long as you didn't over imbibe. They, it's not that they were in favor of drunkenness, but they by all means drank. The Puritans drank. John Winthrop, remember that name? He was one of the founding members of the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1630. His ship across the Atlantic held more than 10,000 gallons of wine in its hold and three times as much beer as water. As for the founding fathers, John Adams began each day with hard cider. Washington had a still on his farm, and James Madison drank a pint of whiskey every day. Not a shot, a pint. They drank a lot of rum and uh, and generally much more hard liquor back, especially during the triangle trade, you know, slavery. Uh, we were largely trading for molasses and sugarcane to make rum in those early days. As the country grew, so did the excess, in part because farming boomed. But then in the 1800s in particular, there had been such a boom in terms of uh, farming and new agricultural lands that they just had vast surpluses of cereal grains like corn and wheat. How did you preserve crops in the 1800s? You turned them into alcohol, liquid assets. By the 1820s, whiskey sold for 25 cents per gallon, making it cheaper than wine, coffee, tea, or milk. Uh, peaked in 1830 when people were drinking on average, it works out to like 1.7 bottles of standard strength 80 proof liquor per week per person. These statistics take into account changes in alcohol content over the years. When Jim says 80 proof, that would be something like whiskey. Imagine a bottle of Jim Bean. Now, imagine one and two-thirds standard 750 milliliter bottles of Jim Bean. That's almost 1.3 liters of whiskey per adult each 
week. It's it's about three times higher than average standard current alcohol consumption. And and, and keep in mind that that number that's a, like a median number. So that takes into account all the people who didn't drink. That's not the average among people who were drinking. That's the average among spread out among all people. So the people who were drinking were drinking even more than that, especially the heavy drinkers. Changes your idea about the 1800s, doesn't it? This is just in the U.S., by the way. Foreigners visiting in the 1800s sometimes commented on how drunken the United States was. In 1837, a guy named Frederick Marriott published A Diary in America. I'm Eric Nevins from the Halfway There podcast, reading from A Diary in America. I'm sure the Americans can fix nothing without a drink. If you meet, you drink. If you part, you drink. If you make acquaintance, you drink. If you close a bargain, you drink. They quarrel in their drink. They make it up with a drink. They drink because it's hot. They drink because it's cold. If successful in elections, they drink and rejoice. If not, they drink and swear. They begin to drink early in the morning. They leave off late at night. They commence it early in life and they continue it until they soon drop into the grave. I honestly don't know how they got anything done. I think they kind of didn't get anything done. Uh, there was just, just man, mandated breaks in the in the workday. It was just expected that workers were going to be loaded practically all the time to the point where they had like a, an 11 a.m. break that was called like grog time where they would just, you know, pound a few. <laughs> Doesn't it kind of make sense that into this environment came the temperance movement, the call to encourage moderation or to temper their drinking habits? We kind of look back on the temperance movement like it was sort of a bunch of frigid frigid old biddies who wanted to take everyone's fun away. But given what consumption was like at the time, you can actually kind of see, you can certainly see what their rationale was in a lot of cases. Um, you know, when it was a public health epidemic, yeah, like that must've seemed like a pretty reasonable stance to take. It was a national health emergency. Instead of being frigid old biddies, suffragists were kind of forward thinking. Which is why talking about alcohol in the 1800s naturally ties into a discussion of women. When we think about women's rights now, we're talking about things like equal pay, discrimination in the workforce, and sexual harassment. In the 1800s, women were something akin to invisible in whole arenas of the public world. Again, think about your picture of the 1800s. Do you see any women there? If you do, they're probably in bonnets cradling children on a covered wagon, using a gnarled broom to sweep a wooden porch. One of the things that comes up a lot, especially around elections, is the topic of the good old days, when life was simpler. Some would say better. This sentiment is really offensive to, believe it or not, a lot of people. Before you tune out and say, oh, we've gotten too sensitive, listen up for just a moment. Because the 1800s were lousy for black people. The Civil War didn't end until 1865, and it didn't suddenly magically become wonderful to be black. There was also a lot of anti-Semitism, anti-immigrant talk, and it was lousy for women for reasons we'll get into in just a moment. So when politicians and speechwriters talk about the good old days, it leaves a lot of us saying, what good old days? There weren't 
really a lot of options for women. That's Claire White. My name is Claire White, and I am the Educational Programs Manager at the Mob Museum. Which is in Las Vegas. They've got an exhibit that goes into prohibition and women's suffrage. Hey, back to the 1800s. If you were in a situation where uh, your husband or your father wasn't able to hold a steady job or, uh, you know, had some sort of mental illness or, or uh, alcoholism, there were not very many options for you. It's not just that women couldn't vote. They also couldn't work. Not out in the world, anyway. If you had any way to make money, it was probably in the home, which would have been very challenging if uh, if you were dealing already with household instability and domestic abuse. Um, and there certainly was no real legal or political action that you could take. A lot of the social reform movements of the 1800s were really the only way for a woman to exercise her political voice. Uh, you, you know, you you could not vote in elections. Uh, some states you could not even take uh, cases to trial. So it it was really one of the only ways for them to better their own situations. No work outside the home, no vote. And it was difficult, very difficult, to bring legal action against anyone. It was hard to own property, tricky to maintain finances, and women were expected, if not mandated, to rely on their fathers or their husbands. The best they could do was hope that this man had his act together. But this was the 1800s, and America, as we know, was pretty sloshed. The first state to pass a law against wife-beating was Tennessee, good old forward-thinking Tennessee, in 1850. If a man got drunk and was violent to his wife, daughter, sister, there was nowhere for her to go. If he drank away all their money, there was little she could do. Is there any wonder that women became so involved in the temperance movement? Temperance has this weird distinction of meaning officially consumption in moderation, while also socially implying abstaining completely. We'll be bouncing back and forth a bit between those two. The temperance movement was really a training ground for uh, future suffragists. And it's, I think it's often easy to forget that both movements started around the same time. Uh, it's just that, that uh, I think more men got on board with temperance earlier, so that's why we see a little more traction with it. The U.S. seemed ready for change. The Women's Christian Temperance Union, which was founded in Ohio in 1873 and was really one of the leading temperance organizations in the United States in uh, from the 1870s until about 1900, they were as active in women's suffrage and uh, the women's movement as they were in temperance. Just a note of caution, it is woman's, it's singular. Each individual woman makes a pledge of total abstinence and becomes a member. And you'll usually see it in print as women's, but uh, that's my little pet peeve. To <laughs> I'd like to have the organization correctly named. I had the pleasure of speaking with Sarah Ward. Sarah Ward, and I'm national president of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. It started with a lecture series. You know, at that time, it was very popular for someone to go out and, and tour an area of the country and give lectures because uh, there wasn't 
any television, you know. <laughs> there was a man giving lectures about alcohol. And so he was up in New York State, in, uh, actually in Fredonia, and he told them his father had been an alcoholic. This man, isn't that awful? This is what old age does. Uh, his name will come to me in a minute. It's right on the tip of my tongue. His name was Diocletian Lewis. I had the benefit of looking it up. He was a medical doctor. His father had been an alcoholic, and his mother, uh, one time desperate to be able to care for her family, had asked her friends to pray, and I think they had even visited the saloon. But anyway, it worked. And so uh, then in the, it was in December of 73. He was in Fredonia, and he gave this lecture, and he said, I think that you women uh, could do the same thing. They marched and prayed. It wasn't a rousing success, but out of that meeting came the WCTU. So he went on down to Hillsboro, Ohio. To give a lecture on temperance about his mother and her prayers and the marches. And he said, I think that the women here could do the same thing. And people at the meeting were like, we should get Eliza Thompson on this. So at breakfast on the 24th, the children asked their mother if she was going to go. And she said, well, I haven't decided. And her husband was not particularly supportive. He said, oh, well, it's just, a, you know, one of those things. So, but he said, I know where your mother goes when she's making a decision. So she left the breakfast table and went to her bedroom to pray and decide whether she wanted to go. And there was a knock on the door, and her daughter was there with tears streaming down her face and a Bible in her hand, and, he, and she said, Mother, I think this is your answer. So Eliza went to the meeting. She sat in the back, and people there urged her to lead them. You know, and we don't have the appreciation today of what it was like for women. I mean, they'd never spoken in public. They just didn't do anything like that. The men left the room to pray. The women organized and marched to the saloons. She said, we'll go two by two, and we'll start from the shortest to the tallest. She was the shortest, leading the way, singing the hymn, Give to the Winds Thy Fears. Some of the saloon owners didn't let them in. So they knelt in the snow, and they prayed, and they read scripture, and they sang hymns, and they begged these saloon keepers to close their doors and send the men home so that they could have the money to care for their families. And you have to realize... You know, there weren't any food stamps, there wasn't any welfare program. So if you had a, a husband who was drinking, you either had to count on family or neighbors or the church or someone to help you because you couldn't clothe and, and feed your children. Imagine being in a bar full of men. These weren't clean hipster bars, but grimy, dark places. You're there with your friends, maybe, on Christmas Eve, when you should be home with your family. And in walks your wife, your neighbor, women from your church, praying for you, begging you to go back to your family. It sounds old-fashioned and a little old-timey, but what could be more convicting than that? And a lot of these men did have a conscience, and they, and they knew they weren't doing something that was right, and so they, they closed. And the word spread to Cincinnati, Indiana, New York, the bars didn't stay closed for long. They'd shut down for a while and then reopened when it was safe. So the movement got organized. They met in Cleveland, Ohio in 1874 to start the National Organization. It would later be joined by other groups like the Anti-Saloon League, all to fight alcohol. As Claire White said earlier, the temperance movement and the women's suffrage movement started at about the same time. Temperance found traction a little sooner and therefore 
was a great training ground for eventually getting women the right to vote. Of course, not every Christian supported temperance. We're a diverse people under a big umbrella, something to keep in mind every time you hear something about evangelicals in the newspaper. But the movement did have its roots in the Protestant faith. It began with prayer and hymns, after all. Here's Sarah Ward from the WCTU again. You know, I can't say that, that everyone, but I would say the very strong majority were, were church women. Uh, and one of the I didn't mention, when, uh, when Eliza was getting her group organized to go, she called on one of the women to pray before they left the church. And, and that is recorded, and the woman said, that's the first time I ever heard my voice in prayer because they just prayed silently, and they were never called on in a meeting to pray, So, which was another indication of how, how little women had any participation in anything going on in public. Women were finding their voices. There's something about getting like-minded people together, rallying around a common cause that enables people to accomplish their goals. Change didn't come overnight. It was a long, difficult struggle, but women were taking a stand. Their effort would eventually help pass prohibition laws and then secure the right to vote. But first, they had to get their act together, realize that they were stronger than the obstacles set before them, and march. We'll cover more of their stories in our next episode. For now, let's go back to where we started with Jenna DeWitt and Twitter. So I just tweeted that I was seeing a lot of people on Twitter asking, when can we have a conversation about the relationship between alcohol and violence in this country? I don't think we need statistics to tell us that we've got a problem. You've been out in the world, right? To bars, talked with people. You probably know someone who gets violent when intoxicated. Maybe you're like me and you've been attacked by a person who was under the influence. Our relationship with intoxicants is tenuous at best. We want our party culture, but we don't want our elected officials to have partied. We have different standards for ourselves than for others. We want our drugs and our alcohol, our freedom to do whatever we want, but we also expect other people to be on their best behavior when they're least able to do so. It's nearly impossible to make life-altering decisions like, should I sleep with this person, when even buzzed. Yet, a lot of us walk that tightrope. Alcohol can make dangerous people more dangerous. And sometimes otherwise decent people become threats. The fact is that we know the connection between alcohol and violence. Some of us can drink responsibly and some of us can't. We should be able to go through life without being attacked, but we know that it does happen. And way too often. There are no easy answers here. With all the stuff that's gone down in the news lately, I found myself stunned and silent. So many of my friends have taken to Facebook to tell their painful stories. Hopefully, these episodes about women standing up for the right to vote and calling for temperance will be of some value in the 24-7 news coverage. Maybe we can find some inspiration here. Our own call to action and prayer. Here's some of Psalm 146, that passage that changed Eliza's mind, compelling her to lead. The Lord opens up the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are bowed down. The Lord 
loves the righteous. The Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow, but he thwarts the way of the wicked. I'd love to hear what you think about this subject. If you've got some thoughts you'd like to share, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to us at trucepodcast at yahoo.com. Our Bible reading was from the New American Standard Bible. Special thanks to Jenna DeWitt for sparking this story as well as our next episode. Our clips of the Kavanaugh trial are from PBS's NewsHour. Thanks to Jim Varell from Paste Magazine and Claire White and Yenta Liu from the Mob Museum in Las Vegas and Sarah Ward from the WCTU. We've got links to all their sites on ours at trucepodcast.com. There you can find our Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook feeds and find links to my films Bringing Up Bobby and Between the Walls and my novel Cradle Robber. I'm Chris Sterren. This is Truce.